Today, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. We're in Romans 11, and uh, some of the issues we're going to talk about today are, they're related to Israel and the church, and they're important issues. Please trust me on this. <laughs> they, they matter. Um, what ultimately is God's plan for Israel in the future? That, that's one of the things we're going to ask. Like, what really is, according to the scriptures, what is God's plan for Israel in the future? And is the church a replacement for Israel? Is it like Israel? No more. Church? Yes. Is that is that the scenario? Uh, it's it's not. <laughs> so we'll answer that question with a no, but we'll do it with the, with the teaching of Scripture verse by verse is the point. Um, and we'll also get a wonderful reminder about humility, a big, heavy point about humility as we get later on in the study. Um, this chapter of the Bible is debated, contested, and it is pivotal for understanding Israel because it's one of the clearest teachings about Israel post-Christ post-Messiah, post-rejection of Jesus, what about Israel? Um, so I, I want to work to make it clear. That's my point. Make this passage clear. Because people who don't understand Jewish and Gentile issues miss out on a large portion of the Bible. So as you start to get familiar with these things, even if you're hearing it for the first time um, and you're starting to just go, I wasn't even, aware, this wasn't even on my radar, this Jewish-Gentile stuff. It wasn't really on my radar before. Well, now that it is, well, the book of Hebrews is going to make more sense to you. Right? The book of Galatians is going to make more sense to you. The book of Acts is going to make more sense to you. The words and parables of Jesus are going to make more sense to you. So much of the scriptures will just jump out to you and, uh, with more clarity now. So that's why it's worth the labor. Um, so Romans, let's just read verses 1 through 6 to kind of get what we did last week. This is like kind of by way of review. <clears throat> I'll just read through the passage to set the stage for us. So it says in verse 1 of Romans 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, Paul speaking, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, speaking from Paul's perspective, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Um, there's so much in there, and we did that. We did that verse by verse. I just wanted to set the stage for us, right? Basically, has God cast off Israel? Of course not. Look at me, I'm Paul. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. In fact, look at, look at the story of Elijah. When Israel, the northern kingdom, was in the midst of its greatest apostasy, and even the prophet, the great prophet, thought, God, it's over. They've all rebelled against you. Nobody loves you but me. And then God says, no, 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 no. I have preserved people a seed of remnant within Israel. And so even at this present time, there's a remnant. Speaking of Paul, his time. Now, if at the moment after the rejection of Jesus, there was still a remnant of faithful Israel, I believe that there would still be today as well. Because um, we're certainly not at that dark moment. Um, so that's the denial. The denial in verses 1 through 6, the basic denial is God has not cast off his people. And here I'll give you reasons, like three reasons why. That's verses 1 through 6. But then in verse 7, he gets into what then? That's the question. What then? Well, if God hasn't cast off his people, then what is the point? What is the thing that God is doing with Israel? What's the plan? Verse 7. Uh, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest 
were blinded. Israel has not obtained. This means Israel as a whole. When it says here Israel, I think he means Israel as a whole. In, in, the, in the big picture, the majority of Israelites did not obtain what they sought, but the elect, a smaller group within that majority, they did receive it. Uh, Romans 10.3 talks about what, what it was that they didn't receive, what they didn't get. They were seeking, but they didn't get. It says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. We, we've taught through that already. So the idea is this. They wanted righteousness by works instead of by faith, and that's why they didn't get righteousness. So they didn't get what they were seeking because they sought it wrong. Um, but they sought was righteousness, but sought it wrong. But then this word elect comes up, and I want to take a minute to talk about it because it's been relevant. As we've been talking about some of the issues of, between Calvinism, non-Calvinism, <laughs> which, which we, I'd be a non-Calvinist. I wouldn't call myself an Arminianist because of a couple particular reasons. But, but this issue of election, um, if you want a full teaching on that or a, a more detailed one, I actually have a video online. The title of the video is Calvinism, Arminianism, Election, and Predestination. A bunch of big words, so it must be a good video. <laughs> um, so there's a detailed teaching on that. I won't do that tonight. I just want to say a couple things about this word elect that we see in verse 7. Because here's the thing, if you're a Calvinist, you probably read verse 7 and you see the word elect and you assume the entire doctrine of election is applying to this verse. But I have a problem with that. Um, to me, there's a problem when you put theological meanings on words and then you always read that word with that theological meaning. You can't do it consistently. Now, as a younger believer, younger in, in, in the Lord, I thought the word justification always meant the same thing. And the same thing was a careful theological definition of justification. Now, sometimes it means a careful theological definition of justification. Other times it means something very different, more of a general dictionary definition of the word. So the same is true with the word elect. The same is true, for instance, with the word saved. There's times in the Bible where saved is used and is not referring to what you're thinking of as salvation. It's like, you saved me. But you didn't save me, save me. <laughs> so sometimes it's just the word. So what we shouldn't do, and I know this makes it harder work for us as we're reading our Bibles. What we shouldn't do is take a word that we use to summarize a doctrine, like elect or justified or save or something like that, and then read that doctrine into every time the word shows up in the text. You have to be open to the idea that sometimes the word just means the simple meaning of the word. And usually it's pretty clear in the passage. It's not hard work, really. Uh, it, it's pretty easy. So th this is a good principle to learn. Uh, that way it doesn't become presumptuous. I don't read my theology into the text. I read the text for what it says, and then I get the theology out of it. Um, so who are the elect in verse 7? That's the question. Who are the elect? Well, the elect, if I read the verse, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. In, in Calvinist theology, I think that the elect here would refer to whoever's chosen from before time for salvation, uh, and then all the other doctrines of Calvinism come, along, come alongside, like they're um, irresistible, irresistibly saved, irresistible grace, you know, total depravity, you know, the perseverance of the saints. All these different things are coming in alongside. But here, the word elect, you know what it means? Anybody remember what elect means? It just means chosen, like I chose you. That's the idea. But who are the elect here? In this context, it's a portion of Israel. I think the elect in verse 7 are Jewish people. So Paul's saying, in general, Israel did not obtain what it seeks, but the elect, this remnant, this smaller group within Israel, did receive it. 
He's not using the word to talk about every person who's ever been chosen for salvation or something like that. Specifically, I think, my understanding is this is a portion of Israel because there's a contrast between the elect and the rest. In verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. The rest of what? Of Israel. The elect of Israel received it. The rest were blinded. I'm going to lob another grenade at Calvinism, but not because of anything in me that's mean or anything like that. It's just because I see it in the text, right? It, we're going to get into the, the idea of blindness for a second. And it says, here's, these, here's these, these two categories of Israel, right? The elect, those who did receive it, right? Then the, the rest were blinded. Now, if Calvinism is true and total depravity holds, then why does God have to blind anybody? Like, do you have to blind dead people? Not really. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? If total depravity is quite true, then there's no sense in which God must blind Israel. This, this doesn't seem to be needed. It, it seems to be pointless. It's like poking the eyes out of a dead body. It's not effective in any way. So Israel was blinded. And we, and we see them being blinded even as Jesus is teaching. As it's, it's, like, it's like happening real life, real time in their lives rather than from birth. So now there is a sense of the fall, there is a sense of depravity in man, but I personally do not think the scripture teaches total depravity, the doctrine itself, although some pretty significant depravity is involved, that's for sure. Uh, read, you know, Romans 7 and, and read, read uh, well, just read the Bible. <laughs> um, okay, so moving forward here, let's look at verse 8. Um, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. That word stupor because I know you use that word all the time, right? Uh, it means unable to think. That's what it's talking about. Like an inability to think clearly about this issue. That's the spirit of stupor. Um, so God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they sh should not hear to this very day. And David says, now he quotes the Old Testament here again, uh, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. The idea of a table becoming a snare is the idea of the blessings you're given end up tripping you up because you're not receiving them properly. You're not, you're not, you're not hearing what God's doing for you, so you reject. Basically, you, you take blessings and you turn that into a calloused heart. And so uh, a stumbling block and a recompense to them, let their eyes, verse 10, be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. Uh, verse 8 here is from Isaiah 29.10. That's the passage being quoted. Isaiah 29, 10, and verses 9 and 10, when he says, as David says, that's from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. The idea behind these phrases is that these people are unable to get to the truth. Like, they've been blinded. Their, their spirit of stupor that's upon them. This is judicial. This is what we call judicial hardening, or hardening because of your actions. And I can give you a few reasons why. In Isaiah 29, if you read the context in pa uh, the passage in context, uh, which we're not going to take all the time to do tonight, but I, go ahead. You have a Bible, right? So you could do this if you like. Isaiah 29, you can read this spirit of stupor that comes upon them is because of their sin, if you read the passage. So it's, a, it's judicial. It's a consequence of sin. In Psalm 69, the table becoming a snare, all this stuff happening to them, it's because of sin. It's because of their... In fact, the passage is neat, Psalm 69. It's because it's messianic. There's messianic qualities in the passage. Plus, David himself is a messianic figure, I should say, a picture of the Messiah. So the idea of Psalm 69 is, here I am, the anointed king of God, and the people are rejecting me. 
well, because of their rejection of me, let them become blind. So there is this, this real parallel to the experience of the uh, first century Jewish world and their experience with Jesus, uh, rejecting that Messiah and becoming blind. That's also consistent with Romans 1. Um, Romans 1 talks about how people become increasingly bound by sin, increasingly bound in slavery to their sins, and increasingly spiritually dull. Not only given over to a debased life, but being given over to a debased mind. So that's, that's the parallel that's there. So there's, and there's lots of examples in scripture. Um, I might point you to a video I, we, we put out, uh, I taught you guys, called Why God Hardens Hearts. Um, and that gets into more detail on that topic as well. <clears throat> so we remember this point though. Blinding is judicial, salvation is by mercy. The believer should go into more and more light because they're in God's grace and they're walking in that grace and they're living in that, that light. But the unbeliever or the rejecter of God's truth goes into greater and greater darkness. And I've seen this. Have you not seen this? There's people I know who I have a conversation with them about the Lord and they kind of get it, but they reject it. And years later, we have the same conversation. Have you done this? And they don't get it anymore. And you're like, how is it you understood this before and now you can't? Because there's a spiritual blindness that's upon that person's life. Because they rejected, so they became blind. I've, I've, I've seen this happen lots of times. And um, it, it saddens me, but I think we should take it as a warning to ourselves. If there are things in which God is ministering to you, listen. Receive. Take action on it. It's not too late. What a lie. What a lie from the enemy. If God's like, do this, then it must not be too late. Because he's telling you to do it still. <laughs> And so if there's things the Lord's ministering to you and to your life to show you things, to point things out, to make change in your life, listen, because even as a believer, I think that this can affect us to an extent where we grow kind of dull to the things that God, we get calloused, you know, and those calluses can not only be in our heart sensing, our conscience being sensitive to, to failure or problems in our lives, but it seems like it can also be on our minds and our ability to perceive just simple truths uh, when it comes to God and Christianity, following the Lord, that we can also become callous. So I take it as a personal warning, I really do, um, that we should listen to the Lord and, and take heed to his voice and, and take action and don't comfort yourself by saying, well, a lot of other people are making the same mistakes as me, so it's probably not a big deal. <laughs> but uh, receive his grace for the failures of the past, but don't be receiving his grace for the planned failures of the future. That's not the way it works. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> Let me mention this too. Even if a person is spiritually blind, even if this scripture applies to them in the sense that there's a spiritual stupor, they've been stupefied, they're no longer able to think. They're no longer able to be clear in their hearts and minds about these truths that maybe even once they knew. There's still hope for them. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's look at this. This passage, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14 through 16, this is Paul describing a Jewish person who, previously rejecting Christ, comes to faith in Christ and what happens in that person's life. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. And it says, But their minds were blinded. So there's that judicial hardening. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. That's that spiritual blindness, that veil. 
It's saying that, in fact, the story is, if you read the passage, Moses would go in and he'd be there in the tabernacle meeting with God and he's getting the text of scripture that he's writing out and stuff. Then he would come out of the tabernacle and his face was glowing. He'd cover his face so that they, and it's interesting, so they wouldn't see the fading of the glow. So they didn't see the glow and they didn't see it fade away. And so then it's, uh, an analogy is drawn towards this New Testament truth is that the law was glorious, but it was a temporary glory meant to lead you to something else. And the, and the Jewish person who reads the law is not seeing this when they have rejected Jesus. So that veil's not lifted. As they, that, there's that, I mean, you read the text and you're like, look, this is about Jesus. How do, how do, there are Jews who love the Old Testament and they spend their time reading the Hebrew Bible, studying carefully, thoughtfully the scriptures. How do you not see Jesus, man? Because the veil is not lifted. But, but it's not over. It says, because the veil is taken away in Christ. In verse 15, even to this day, when Moses is read, Moses being the Old Testament, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the person who has a spiritual blindness upon their minds and hearts, they can turn to the Lord and that veil is taken away in Christ? And then what happens? Well, just ask any Jewish person who after knowing the Torah, knowing the, the, the Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, then they come to Jesus and they're like, oh. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And they start seeing him everywhere in the text because the veil comes off and there's this flood of knowledge that comes their way and it's beautiful. So there are spiritual issues where there's blindness, hardness of hearts that come our way, but when we just, how do you fix this? Just turn to Christ. Turn your heart to Christ, turn your mind to Christ, turn freshly to Christ. You're not so hard that you can't be healed. You're not so, you're not so dumb that you, you, you can't be made smart again by the Lord, so to speak. Spiritually foolish that God can't make you wise. Um, and that, that's like the promise of Proverbs, right? To, to give the fool wisdom, the book says. I'm glad to hear that. Give us fools some wisdom. Um, so the veil comes up. Uh, verse 11, <clears throat> as we continue, Romans 11, verse 11. He says, I say then, speaking of those, those Jews who did not receive and who were, who were hardened, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, I'm going to have to give you guys um, some Greek tonight. Um, And it's not because I want to show off because I'm not that good anyways, but because it's important for the text. If we're reading the New King James Version, and it, I think, incorrectly translates the, the different words as fall over and over again. Because he seems to say, right in, in the beginning of verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall, meaning being utterly destroyed, like end of the Jewish people? Certainly not. But through their fall, wait, wait, what? They didn't fall, but they fell? What is this saying? I'm confused. Well, as we look at the actual <coughs> Greek, these are three different words, multiple different words, and they're used in different ways. So let me explain. Um, in verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall, that word fall, it's uh, the word pesosin, which means to be destroyed utterly, like a final utter destruction, like that's it, it's all over. So what, what is being denied? Israel, though they stumbled, they are not destroyed. You might say they're struck down, but not destroyed. Right? You might say they are, they are definitely hurting, but it's not over. That's the point. But then he goes on 
but through their fall, it says in verse 11, through their fall, that's a different word. It's not pesosin. It's paraptomati, which is sin or transgression. So it really shouldn't be translated fall. And you're not really going to find other translations translating it as fall. This was just the way they did it at that time. Sin or transgression. So if I read it that way, I go, have they stumbled that they should fall, be utterly destroyed? Certainly not. But through their sin or through their transgression, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That makes more sense. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, others fall again. <laughs> so, so they did fall. No, that again is paraptoma, the same, same root word uh, as the one before, meaning sin or transgression. So through their sin or transgression. Does that make sense? So that should clarify it. But then it says, and their failure, and you might wonder what that word means. And that word actually in this context, it means lack through their lack. There's a shortcoming in the life of Israel right now. I think we can agree on this. They're missing their Messiah. There's a, so through their lack, <clears throat> through their failure, which you could translate as lack or, or, or failure, you could. But because of the next word fullness at the end of verse 12, I think it should be translated possibly as lack. Lack. So let me, let me read it to you that way. Now, if their sin is riches for the world and their lack riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. See, because fullness and lack correspond with each other. So that context tells you how to translate a word, and that seems to be saying, if this could mean failure or lack, well, you have fullness coming next. So I think lack and fullness make more sense than failure and fullness. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I hope you track with me on that. Okay, so conclusion, Israel is lacking in the number of saved Jews, but they are not forsaken. And there's this anticipation about their future. What about their fullness? Hey, man, if, if God's even using their failures and their falls and the, in this in real case, their sin and their lack to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, how much more will he, uh, will he bless their fullness? So let me draw your attention to another word in English this time. <laughs> so we're back in English. That was all the Greek for tonight. Um, have they stumbled that they should fall? That. You could put it this way. Was the purpose of their stumble their destruction? Was it like God's going, you know what, Israel? I can't stand you anymore. I hate you. I want to watch you fall. So he trips them to see them fall. End of story. That is, that's what's denied. The purpose of Israel having the stumble was not to lead to a final fall. Uh, that's what's denied. That's an example here. It's going to be an example of Romans 8, 28, God working all things together for good. So if you just go back in time with me for a second to first century Israel, you see a large number of Jews, and you read this in the book of Acts. Paul goes from place to place with the gospel. He brings it always, wherever city he goes, he brings it to the, to the uh, synagogue first. And he shares it with the synagogue, the Jewish people. When they re- reject, some of them would receive, but if they reject, he then says, fine, I will go to the Gentiles. And this happens city after city after city. So what is God doing? He's using the rejection of the Jews to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the point. And here's Paul writing it. He's talking about his own experience, really, of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, they even say, sometimes he goes, from now on, we'll go to the Gentiles. Like, that's, that's the quote of Paul. It's what he does. <clears throat> so, why have they stumbled? Well, to bring salvation to the Gentiles, according to verse 11 right there. Salvation to the Gentiles. This is like an unveiling of what God is doing through the hard circumstances of a large number of people rejecting Jesus. He's using their rejection to bring the gospel to other people. 
So God is working salvation even through people who are rejecting salvation. And I, I just think that's a beautiful thing. Um, I don't always know what God's doing, you know, through the circumstances of life. Maybe I, I could say that slightly more accurately. I don't know what God's doing through the circumstances of life. <laughs> um, I really don't. Um, and I find that people who are obsessed about determining what God's doing through everything, I don't mind asking the question. I wonder what the Lord's. But if, but if you have to know and you're obsessed with, oh, that was the reason, um, you'll probably find yourself getting frustrated. I used to always try to figure it out. And then I, got, I just got disappointed so many times in my own lack of wisdom that I gave up. So it might be good to just, to just at least notice this. Here's where the Bible tells us what God was doing. And what was he doing? Bringing salvation to people. He's working salvations through the hardships of these, these, uh, these people rejecting Jesus. So this is a nice glimpse. Um, <clears throat> verse 12 then, it talks about their hypothetical fullness. Like, here's the idea. What would it be like if instead of largely mo most Jews rejecting Jesus, what if most Jews received Jesus? Like, what would that really look like? That's what he's saying here. Well, what would their fullness be like? You're like, man, it'd be like, it'd be like 144,000 Jewish evangelists or something is what it would be like. It would be like these people who have been steeped in the scriptures and who have this tradition and this strength that would then be just brought right in with them into their faith in Christ in Messiah and this boldness and this confidence and this stubbornness in a good way. And I just, I think it'll be glorious. And I think it'll be, so, it'll be a, such a blessing to the rest of us when we can interact more and more with saved Jewish people. And I think they have a lot to teach us. You know, because we're all, we're the foreigners getting plugged in. And they're, they're the natural branches. And so there's, what would their fullness be like? I, I think that's, it's, he's, he's excitedly talking about this. Now, does this mean that there's a future time where this will happen? I think yes. And I think as we read the rest of the chapter this week and next week, you'll see that this is something he's actually anticipating. It's not just a possibility. It's going to happen, and he's excited about it. Um, and I am too. So <clears throat> verse 12, it speaks about a hypothetical, about the fullness of the Jews, or the majority of Jews really believing in Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and it will bring a wonderful blessing. And, uh, and in verse 25 in particular and on, we'll see how this is not a hypothetical only. It's a reality. So, but let's keep plodding through verse by verse. Verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Um, that was Paul's particular calling. He was called specifically to minister to the Gentiles. He would still go to the Jews first, but the majority of his ministry was to Gentile people. <clears throat> and uh, that was his, his calling. And so he speaks to them now and says, If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Those who are of his flesh are the Israelites. So he goes, I know I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. One of my goals in my mind is this. The more Gentiles I see saved, the more people there are witnessing to the Jews. I mean, he saw it all as salvation related. It's like he saw everything in his life as being related to how it could expand the gospel and how it could grow the knowledge of Christ in the world. And I think that's a, a, a noble trait. And I like to have that as well. Um, he always had this stuff in the back of his mind. Paul loved the Jewish people, and I think there's, there's a chance, there's a chance that God might really love them too. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <clears throat> and he still had hope for their salvation, right? Because he's here talking decades after they rejected Messiah. The temple's about to be destroyed. And here he's talking about Jews getting saved. 
So if there's anybody out there who's lost hope for Jewish people, you need to go back and read that verse again. Because he sees Gentiles as missionaries to Jewish people. And guess what he sees Jewish people as? Missionaries to Gentiles. <laughs> because this is the body of Christ and we, we bring all in. Uh, the word jealousy is used here in particular. That's interesting. Um, I think the idea is this, is that they would see Gentiles in a real relationship with, with Yahweh. They would recognize that, that these Gentiles are, are really following the, this Jewish Messiah. And then they would be, get provoked to, uh, to want this Jesus too. And that, that's the idea. <clears throat> and think about this too. Like, if, Let's say that you're, you're a Jewish person. Imagine this for a second. There are literally billions of people, billions and billions of people since the time of Jesus that have been worshiping this Jewish Messiah figure. He's the most influential Jew to have ever lived. And these people, they don't just claim to worship and idolize him. They're going around, these Gentiles, going around claiming they have a relationship with him. They're going around and they're teaching each other your Old Testament, your Hebrew Bible. Does this not provoke something in you? <laughs> At least to go and maybe, I don't know, read what this first century Jewish rabbi said and wonder why is it that so many people thought he's the Messiah? Um, it just provoke them to jealousy is the idea. To provoke them to, to dig in and say that there's something here. This is so different than what some people have done in history, which is consigning Jewish people to damnation. Persecuting, hating, calling them names, stuff I won't even, I won't even repeat. This is so different. Instead, Paul looks at them and says, you are a mission field. That's what you are. You're a mission field. Not to be rejected and cast off a mission field. <clears throat> now, we can do this with not just Jewish people, but with any group of people. In fact, the most modern example I see of this is the Muslims. I find it really hard to get some believers to think that Muslims can actually be saved. And they say crazy stuff. Oh, well, you know, <clears throat> those Muslims can't be saved. After all, their religion lets them lie to you. You think they're going to fake believe in Jesus? You think that's what the Muslim religion is going to have them doing? That's committing what's called shirk, which is like the highest sin that they can commit to say that God has a son. So I'm thinking if they say it, they probably mean it, seeing as how they're going to be in a whole lot of trouble afterwards. But there is sometimes a bitterness or a hatred towards a group of people that gets us to think that they're forever blind, forever darkened, and forever unable to receive the gospel. Now, we can, also, we can hold this to groups of people or individuals, but I'm saying this. Look, here's an example of a people that are judicially hardened by God, who rejected Jesus to his face, and Paul has nothing but hope for their salvation, even knowing they are actually blinded right now. Still hopes for their salvation, still thinks it can happen. We should have the same attitude towards everybody. Verse uh, 15, as we read a little further here, <clears throat> it says, For if their being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? They're being cast away. That, that is the rejection of the Messiah amongst a large number of uh, Jewish people. It's the re reconciling of the world. That is the gospel then goes out to the Gentiles as the result of that. Uh, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Exactly. If they can be brought out, they can be brought in. Uh, that's the idea. That's the idea. This would be Revival. Revival in the Jewish world, that's what Paul's talking about. A Jewish revival, a Messiah revival, Messival, you might call it. 
<laughs> or not. Um, I say revival because literally the, the words are life <clears throat> from the dead. If that's not revival, I don't know what is. To revive, to bring back to life. <coughs> the message is that the prodigal son can come home. The prodigal son is still able to come home. That's the message. What a blessing. How many people have you maybe talked to who thought they were too far gone? And you're looking at them going, have you not realized how wide open the arms of Jesus were nailed on the cross? And that he's able to accept you and embrace you even now? There are people in the crowd who shouted, crucify, crucify, who later got saved. Praise God. When the worst of sinners comes to the Lord, whether they have been a murderer, a rapist, a pedophile, an abuser, just a terrible human being in every way, when they come to Christ for real, and they're saved, and their life is changed from the inside out, and they're given a new heart. This is so beautiful, and this is so glorious. And that's the gospel that he's preaching. And so he's just saying, look, just like we had to pull teeth to get some people to realize that you Gentiles could really be saved, maybe we got to pull some Gentiles' teeth to get them to realize how much God loves these Jewish people too. That this is a, it's a, it's a full gospel message. <clears throat> when Israel was in the midst of his greatest apostasy, there was still enough grace for them to come back home. Which means, good news, there's enough grace for you. Um, I want to get into uh, these, there's some analogies that come up, and I like to, I like to unpack them uh, tonight. And, and they start in verse 16. So it says, <clears throat> For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Uh, the first fruit would, would often refer to an offering. Right? And then the lump is holy, so it would be the remainder. Like I, I offered some of the first fruit, and then the lump of meal, or of, of the, basically the, the lump of dough that I made from the stuff I didn't offer, that is also holy. So the offering of the first fruit, and then the lump. Um, th these are two different metaphors. The other one is about the root and the branches, so it's an analogy about a tree. And it's not really explained exactly in the text, but let's let's dig in a little bit. So... The offering of the first fruit, making the lump holy, that was kind of understood at the time. Um, it, was a, it was the idea of a portion affecting the whole. This portion is offered to the Lord, but there's still something holy about this other portion. And I think here the word holy is being used in the sense of set apart. Not holy like righteousness and stuff like that, but rather set apart. I think that the point is that God's plan for Israel continues in spite of there being only a remnant of believing Jews because there was that initial call of God upon Israel and so then that call of God, that first fruit of ancient Israel believers is because God has a, a future plan for them as well. The promises he made to Abraham will in fact all be fulfilled. The many unfulfilled promises to Israel throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, are yet to be fulfilled and we anticipate them. So this is easy for us. You guys have been brought, brought up under this kind of teaching. We believe that there is actually a future for Israel in the land, which is much easier to believe now post-1948 than it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And people thought, no, we have to spiritualize that stuff because that's never going to happen. And then yet we go, well, Maybe we shouldn't spiritualize things that you just don't have enough faith to believe. Like, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, 
So there's a few options people give for first fruit. The lump refers to modern Israel, I think, from Paul's perspective, and then it carries forward until the promises are fulfilled. So it's going to refer to the carrying forward. But the, but the, the first fruit, what was that a reference to? It could, and it's important that I, I do this, I labor over what first fruit means here, because it will help us understand what the root is in the second analogy. Um, so it could be three things. Jesus, um, God's covenant promises, that's the phrase I hear, or it could be ancient Israel, um, meaning like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, these, these, these first people that were called of God. I use the word Israel loosely, the fathers basically is what I'm referring to. So some say it's Jesus because in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is called the first fruits from the dead or first fruits of the resurrection. And that's true. Um, but I think that's a different context. I think that that's not in the context of an offering, but in the context of a first fruit of the season. Um, you go out and you get like your first tomato out of the garden and you know there's more coming later. In the same sense, Christ, he's the first one to rise from the dead. So we know that we will rise too. So that's, it's a different context, the word first fruit. Um, then there's God's covenant promises. I've heard some say that. And I see that Israel is related to the promises God's made to them. That's true. But promises aren't really a first fruit offering, are they? I mean, how, is, how are promises an offering to God? I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. I almost feel like that's a way of avoiding saying that the, the, lump, or the first fruit is Israel. So my interpretation would be that it's ancient Israel. Um, and that's consistent with Jeremiah 2. Let me read to you. Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend, disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. So we, we can see that this is connected to an Old Testament concept of Israel being an offering unto the Lord. And Israel was set apart unto the Lord, and therefore there's a maintained set-apartness that God has planned for that nation, for those people. That's, that's the simple thing it's saying. So uh, ancient Israel is the first fruit, I believe. Um, and then <clears throat> modern uh, Israel or continuing Israel into the future, that's the lump. That's the promises being carried forward. Then there's the root and branches analogy. Um, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Can you guess how many options there are for what the root is? Three. <laughs> Can you guess what they are? Jesus, God's covenant promises, or Israel. <laughs> Ancient Israel. Um, so what exactly are we talking about here? This is, I think, the same thing. I think I'm going to fall in the same thing. This is The root is basically ancient Israel, the initial called ones of God. And, um, and then that will inform us on how we interpret the rest of the passage. So is it Jesus? Um, I don't, I, I mean, I, I see why we'd want to say the root is Jesus, because you want to say what really connects us is Jesus. Well, that's true based on other scriptures entirely. We, we don't need this analogy to say that exactly. But if we're going to be consistent with both analogies, the root and the lump, the branch, the, the root and the branches, then I think we have to say ancient Israel, modern, modern believers and modern Israel. So the branches, I think, refer to present day Israel. And the point would be this. God is not done with Israel. I think I could say this. He who began a good work in Israel will be faithful to complete it. That seems to be legit to me. But then the analogy being laid out gets really detailed. 
verse 17 through 21. Let's just read through it and get the analogy. And if some of the branches were broken off, some of the modern Israelites broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, uh, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Like the purpose of them being broken off was so I could be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty or proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Uh, We'll just get into a little bit of this tonight, and then we'll pick up next week on it, because I'm going to kind of pause in the middle here. But here's the elements I see in the analogy. There are the broken branches, the grafted branches, and there's the root, and there's the partaking of the root and fatness of the tree. So the, the picture that, that we're seeing is this. <clears throat> the, the tree is Israel. The branches are, the, are the, in his day, the modern Israel. And so they had, they had been broken off. They rejected Messiah, so they're taken off the tree. You're, you're no longer going to be partakers of either the, these promises that God has given to Israel, and ultimately, spiritually, you're not really part of this. Then we're grafted in. We're from the wild olive tree grafted in. Usually it was the other way around. They would graft in cultivated branches, not wild ones. But it's, it's important for his analogy that it's this way. It's really kind of intricate. Um, so <clears throat> we are grafted and we're Gentiles. Now, are you still a wild branch? Well, yeah, I mean, you're still a wild branch. You're just on a cultivated tree. That's the Gentiles. <laughs> we're still, I'm not a Jew. I'm still a Gentile, but I'm grafted in and I'm, re- I'm receiving of the root and fatness. I'm, I'm receiving of the blessings, the spiritual blessings and promises. So in a sense, you could kind of say I'm connected to Israel. I've attached myself to the Messiah. We're, 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 like, um, we're like that Gentile who came and says, I will believe in the God of Israel, but it doesn't necessarily make me a Jew. But there are still natural branches and some of them are still receiving. So the broken branches are unbelieving Jews. Notice the tree's not gone. The grafted branches are Gentile believers who are still Gentiles, and we'll get more on that later. And they partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree, which means they get the blessings and salvation that comes through the Messiah and through the promises of God. And so that, that is what Romans is largely about. Jew and Gentile all saved the same way. And then there's the boaster. Um, you will say branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Like that was the point, right? They were broken off so I could be grafted in. Um, God picked me over them. I must be better. That's kind of the implication, isn't it? But the response is, well said. Well, well said that branches were broken off and you were grafted in. But, you're, but, but you forgot why. They were broken off because of unbelief. It's a faith issue. This is why people get saved or not. Faith or not faith. So you remember this. That you stand by grace and you stand by faith. Because you could be broken off too. Now is that saying that you can lose your salvation? I actually don't think we need to go that direction with this passage. I think that what it's saying is this. Though God is doing a work amongst this Gentile group, that work could fail because as generations go, they begin to reject what they once received. They lose faith. And this we've seen happen over and over again. You might have a denomination or a church that's really solid, but over time gets further and further and further away. And we've seen this happen lots and lots through history. Oftentimes, new denominations crop up, not because of weird beliefs, but because the old group got weird. And so we wanted to really be believers, so we kind of broke off and said, let's just keep the simplicity of the faith. 
And a few generations later, they said, we're smarter than that now. We're more clever than that now. We don't need that. And then they got weird. And so then another group broke off and another group broke off. And this kind of consistently happens, like God keeping these faithful remnant of real believers who keep breaking off <laughs> and doing their thing. Um, so be mindful of this. Be mindful of this because Gentiles corporately could also fall away. Churches can be broken off. Denominations can be broken off. Each generation of Christians, this is important, every generation of believers has to learn the gospel afresh and learn to stand and fight for the Christian faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And we've got to restart the journey of learning each generation, learning the text, not just learning the creed of my own fellowship, but learn what it says. If your church is solid, your family is so strong, your legacy is intact, well, that's what many of the Jewish people thought as well. So take heed, take the warning, and know that you've got to be a follower of Jesus in your own life um, and have simple faith in the gospel. So I would say guard yourself against pride, and that, that's where we'll conclude today. I'm going to pick up uh, more of this stuff next week, but for the sake of time, I think we need to stop, and um, we'll continue some of this analogy that's going on. But the bottom line for us at the end here is to guard ourselves against pride. That's the warning of Paul. Oh yeah, you're saved. Oh, God's graced you. God's blessed you. But don't be thinking this is because of you. Remember you're saved by grace. And for a Christian to walk in humility is the most natural, should be the most natural thing for a Christian to have. We really ought to have zero pride. But I've found that pride can enter into every part of your life and it doesn't give you like notice to tell you it's coming. It's like, <laughs> pride is, it's, it's like a really you know, it's like a really bad toot, right? It's like, it's silent but deadly. That's the idea. That this is pride. It comes in and you don't know it's there, but other people do. Other people notice, but you don't because you just can't see it. You just can't see it. <laughs> do you like that analogy? I'm sorry. It seemed appropriate at the time. Um, so the final word to us is this, is there are um, consistent warnings against pride. And in fact, Proverbs, which you would say warns against being a fool more than anything, but it does very clearly say that being proud is worse than being a fool. So it's just to be thoughtful, be mindful of ourselves, walk in humility, put on humility uh, in all genuineness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the reminder tonight. We pray that we would be able to uh, remember the stuff that we've been learning in your word, some of the difficult issues that we're kind of trying to plod through and understand, that it would stick, uh, that things we, we, we hear but maybe don't fully grasp, Lord, help us to understand them better. When we see in this passage your heart of love and the hope for evangelism that you have towards even the hardest of hearts that encourages us, Lord, we pray, let us have that heart too. Let us have that hope too point us towards people in our lives who seem hard. Point us towards them with hope. We pray for their salvation. And we pray, God, that we be those who walk in humility, who know how much grace you've given us so we would know how much grace is available to others. In Jesus' name, amen.